0: You can take your Bibles this morning and open up to John chapter 7. The Gospel of John, we're going to look at verse 25 through verse 39. Originally I was going to go a little further and I think uh, 39 will kind of get there, although I will admit, I think you'll see it when we get there. Uh, Probably the better break is at 36 um, because the conversation about um, Jesus standing up crying out, if anyone is thirsty that kind of sparks what is going to go on for the rest of the chapter. And so in many ways, I'd say uh, part one and part two, it's kind of um, understanding the flow of this. And you could say, really, this is part two of three parts, beginning with the feast of booze. And even then, right, they're drawing all the way back to chapter five and the healing of the paralytic. Uh, But with only these 14 verses, uh, I think it'd be good for us to read together. So go ahead and if you got there, uh, look with me, John 7, starting in verse 25. And we'll read through verse 39. It says, verse 25, So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking openly, and they are saying nothing to him. Do the rulers truly know that this is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he also sent me. He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And so they were seeking to seize him, yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man did? And the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that I will not find him? Is he intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this statement that he has said? You will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, we thank you for the time that we have this morning, Lord, to be the gathered church, Lord, to hear your word proclaimed, to be reminded of the life of our Savior as you look at the gospel of John, to be reminded of the necessity of belief, not just a hope in general, but a specific trust in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of of God. Encourage us this morning in this truth because he is who he claimed to be and therefore what he has promised to give life to those who believe in his name, to give living water, the spirit of which will flow rivers of living water. Lord, in the souls of men and women who trust in him, Lord, may we look at our own lives. And may that be a reminder of what it is to be one of your children, Lord, as we saw early in the Gospel of John, again, this purpose of Christ came that many might come, that many might become your children. We just pray that you be honored as we look here at this passage. In your son's name we pray this, amen. Well, as you look at studying the scriptures, oftentimes people talk about a gap, And you need to fill the gap. And so that gap could be a cultural gap. That gap could be a historical gap. Just simply to say 2024, get that right, 24, is different than 33, 34 AD. It was a different time, different technology, different culture, different language. There's all these gaps that we're trying to fill. And so as you read this, one of the things that's hard, unless you've been to Israel, and even if you've been to Israel, uh, you may not really at first read this with the eyes of a first century uh, Jew living in uh, Israel. You may not read this with the eyes of a Middle Easterner, which makes sense. But we're trying to say, okay, well, let me go ahead and put myself in that. Because see, for me, from the state of Nebraska, doesn't look like Israel, doesn't look like anything in the Middle East. Now there are places in the U.S. that look a little more like a desert, and they have places, like you get out into, especially Southwest America, you'll see these places that kind of, okay, you understand if you live in Phoenix, the idea of water becomes a little bit more important. When I lived in uh, Los Angeles for five years going to seminary, um, and you realize very quickly that it shouldn't exist, And as you kind of drive and you get to say Las Vegas and you keep driving West and you realize it's desert, 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 and then things start to green up. And then you learn, you start to see in the news, the issues with water in California because they're piping all of that water in for those tens of millions of people because it doesn't exist there. If you didn't pipe the water in, it would be a desert wasteland. But I'm from Nebraska. We don't have much, but we have water. You don't know much about Nebraska, the Ogallala Aquifer, we got water. It's not hard to find. You dig a well, you find water, you get close to the Platte River, you've got water. It's a very different kind of culture because I never thought of water as a scarcity. I never thought of, man, I'm really, really thirsty and I can't find water. In fact, think of this term, you think of the desert and you find in the middle of a wasteland, an oasis. And immediately, because I grew up around Grand Island, I think of island oasis. If you're from Grand Island, you know what that is. It's a water park. I don't think of an oasis of a place in the desert. I think of this simple, that's what my, I gotta bridge the gap. What do they think of when they think of an oasis, a fertile freshwater source that can give life in the midst of dry and parched areas that without it, you're gonna die. Well, as you come to this, you gotta bring a bit of that knowledge and understanding of how precious water is. Just like Jesus says, I am the bread of life. When he said, I am the living water, they're coming with that perspective of this is absolutely essential. And maybe because water is so accessible, we don't appreciate what that is. Or the imagery, that it's not just water that's going to come, living water, but then it is going to flow. And how important is that? Not just to have a little pond that is stagnant but something that is ripping and roaring and flowing from it. All those pictures play a role, I think, to get what Jesus is saying here to uh, the crowd and try to get them to understand who he is. And so we're gonna look this morning at three truths about knowing God from this passage. John chapter seven, verse 25 through verse 39. Um, and I don't know if anyone has that control. We can go to the first slide here. And number one, it's there is only one way, to find and to know God. What we've seen in John is this connection, right? The probably most clear presentation of the Trinity, of anywhere in the scriptures, of that there is the Father and there is the Son. And even here, we're starting to be introduced more and more to the role, although I say John 3, you start to see the Spirit, but you're being more introduced to the Spirit's role in his ministry in the world, But there is only one way to be reconciled and to know God. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again. Jesus is going to say, if you're looking at me and you don't know me, it's because you don't know God. That is the issue. And he's said it over and over again. He's looked and he said, if you truly understood last week, right? If you truly understood Moses, if you understood the law, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Sabbath, the purpose of circumcision, then you would judge rightly. And that's kind of where we left off last week. It's in the context of chapter seven where Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the feast of the booze. You remember he didn't go up at first because it wasn't time. Brothers want him to go up in pomp and circumstance, but here he says, no, that's not what I'm gonna go up. So he goes up in secret so that even though they're still gonna try to arrest him, he is going up where he is able probably to get to where he can make these speeches. Because if he had gone up in pomp and circumstance, they probably wouldn't have let him. But as he's come in, just kind of, you'd say, through the back door, no one noticed. And he's there and he's able to cry out two times, which is really shocking. I mean, this is one of the three feasts of which males were required to go to Jerusalem, uh, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles, where you see a lot of that in this this morning. I mean, this is fourth of July kind of celebration. And he just bursts in and makes these claims that he is the Messiah, the son of God. And they're going, is this man crazy or not? Who is he? And that is where we find ourselves. And the first truth I said is that there's only one way he's saying to find and to know God. And that is through the son. Look at verse 25. It says, so some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And they're saying that because he broke out in this speech earlier. They were looking for him. Remember, they couldn't find him because he went up in secret and they're marveling at what he has said. But now they're marveling, listen, isn't this the man that they're trying to stop and yet they can't seem to stop him? And they also don't seem to have sent anyone yet. So something's gone on here where they're going, In any other normal situation, this guy would be put down. This guy is kind of standing up the middle of the service. He's crazy. The the, the deacons, the ushers, they got him. They haul him out. Synagogue continues. Why is he still speaking? Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he's speaking openly and they're saying nothing to him. They're just asking, are are they scared of him? Maybe they really are afraid because they think he might be the Christ. And so He asks, they ask, do the rulers truly know that this is the Christ? So they're afraid to approach him because of the crowds, but yet they're kind of going to be forced because of all this rumbling and rumors. And they say, however, they're going, well, if they is the Christ, then the crowd's asking themselves the question, well, but we know this man. Verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, which they're thinking probably just generally, he's from Galilee. He talks like a Galilean. He looks like a Galilean. He's from Galilee. We know this guy. But whenever they say the Christ, the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And this is kind of going to get back to, uh, they're kind of going to reference more later, um, where there was definitely a belief that he was to come from, obviously, very clearly, biblically, the Davidic line. He's going to come from the town of David, Bethlehem. But there was kind of a tradition that grew up that when he came, because of Old Testament prophecies, that he came as a deliverer, that he'd be kind of unknown, until he came as a deliverer. So they're thinking he would exist in the world, and then one day he'd break on the scene and he would deliver Israel. Chiefly, they're thinking of political deliverance. And they're going, first of all, we know where this guy was from. He didn't come from obscurity. They're gonna question later that he didn't even come from Bethlehem, which he did. But they're just going, we, we know too much. And they're saying he doesn't look, I think in general, they're saying he doesn't look what we expect he doesn't have the look or the speech or the things that we would think of the Messiah. Particularly, he's probably thinking, well, he seems to be challenging the Jewish rulers, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and not challenging the Romans. And they're thinking this is all backwards. It's not the way, it's not meeting our expectations. And so then in verse 28, they go on, then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, And there's a question here of how this in Greek kind of plays out. It's probably one of two things. And I don't know if it matters so much, but it's interesting because he's either saying, you both know me and know where I am from. Or he's asking it as a question, kind of, do you know me? And do you know where I am from? Like either way, it's kind of one way he's saying, you do know where I am from in Galilee. But he's also saying, but I'm more than that. Or he's kind of, pushing back at them and saying, do you really know? Either way, the question is, is kind of pushed out there where he's going to say it's not the point. The point is, where am I truly from? And he's saying, I have not come of myself, which is pointing back to the father over and over like he's done so often. Remember the first 24 verses, the big point there was he is there to glorify he who speaks from himself, verse 18, seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. That is the true Messiah. He is there sent not from himself, but he who sent me is true. And they understand when he's saying, who's true? Humans aren't true. True humans aren't. Why do you call me uh, good? He'll he'll ask in another place in the Gospels. Humans aren't true. They know what he's saying. And more than that, to kind of twist the knife, they know he's saying, he who sent me that is God is true. Then he says, whom you do not know. And so the discussion heats up rather quickly, moving from uh, the question of Sabbath because that's the big question here, which he answers that he was right. It was lawful to heal on the Sabbath to who is Jesus? And he's saying, I am the one who has been sent from the Father. And they understand, and we've seen it before, back to chapter five, they seek to kill him because he's claiming equality with God. They know what he is saying. Either way, he exposes the ignorance and indicts them and claims they do not know him because they do not know God. This is one of those gaps. This is the most privileged, most religious teachers on the planet. They have the true word of God. That is what we consider the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings they're better taught than anyone. The very truth of scripture, the oracles of God, the Jewish scriptures, yet he's saying, you do not know God. And that is why you want to kill me. Well, they seek to do that very thing, verse 30. So they're seeking to seize him. Yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come, which we've seen before. This is is providential divine appointments and he is going to meet every single one of them. He's not going to die at the Feast of Booths. He's going to die as the sacrificial lamb at Passover in seven months from now. And so they can't touch him at this point. Like I said, I thought a lot about that with timing because then why, if they can't touch him, why not go up? But again, it was, remember how the brothers wanted him to go up. They wanted him to go up as king, as celebrated, as, as kind of the celebrity figure. And Jesus said, that's not how I'm going to go up. But I also think I said it gave an opportunity for him to go in and to do these teachings, which are important because he's even going to present an opportunity again to believe in him. And that's what happens in 31, that when these words are heard, many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man did? I don't want to labor too much on what kind of belief that is because sometimes it's hard in John. Is that belief simply in that he's a miracle worker, which we've seen isn't true saving faith. They got to believe in who he is, his person, that he is truly the son of God. However, it does seem to be at this point, kind of way belief progresses in John. It doesn't seem to be negative at this point. They're believing and saying, we've seen enough from this man that there's a distinction between the crowd and the Jews. And that distinction is mainly because that term we've seen in John is used of the Jewish leadership and probably really those who are established in Jerusalem because you got at the festival happening here, feasts where everyone from every part of Jerusalem or Israel's coming. And many of them seem to believe, but not those in power in Jerusalem. Now, are they ready for him to die, to be a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah? Probably not. But they do see the signs, they do hear his words, and the text says they concur with the officers, which we'll see next week in verse 45, that never has a man spoken like this. They recognize Jesus is something else. And what's clear, what Jesus is saying here is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way you are reconciled to God is through him. What are the implications of all of all of this? Which is, I think number one, that the only way to know God is through Jesus, which say it a different way. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. Remember John 1 verse 18, it is Jesus who explains Him or that, that word that can be translated. It's Jesus who narrates Him. He is the representative, as it were. He explains God to humanity. If you reject him, you reject the father just in the same. In fact, if you want some examples that we've seen in say John chapter five, verse 23, it says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You can't honor one and not honor the other. John 5, 42, 43, this is just in this section and we'll go a little bit further into chapter eight with some of these, but he says just a couple chapters back, chapter five, verse 42, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name. You do not receive me. John six forty five. 45, everyone who's heard and learned from the father comes to me. John 8, verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my, my father also. And then John eight forty two. if God were your father, you would love me. It's pretty clear to know God is to know Jesus, to know Jesus is to know God. The second thing I think it points out here is that there is no privileged position of belief. These are the most likely candidates you would think that would be converted out of all the world. They would be the most ready for the acceptance of the Messiah, and yet they are not. Why? Because they are sinners like everyone else, despite being Jewish. They're still sinners, just like every Greek and everyone else out there and everyone that's out there today. There's no privileged positions of belief. You're gonna see this over and over again. You probably see it even more distinctly in Matthew, but here even in John, you see that, and they're kind of gonna bring it out with this issue of wondering if he's gonna to go to the Greeks or he's gonna go into the dispersion, and he's gonna do those and teach there. But for us today, it's a good reminder that just because you grew up in church, just because you attend, just because you got a diploma from Sunday school, doesn't make you any different, any better. The rules haven't changed one bit whether you have that kind of pastor. You never stepped foot in a church until you were 50. Either way, the issue is belief, not family, not origin, none of those things. This testifies that you could be the most theological, privileged people in the world and still miss it, which is terrifying, honestly. But yet you see it over and over again because they're not seeing Christ as the Messiah. And then lastly, you see here again, the reminder that God is ultimately sovereign. He's going to go about the father's plan and his perfect timing. And no one, including Satan, is gonna get in his Way, which is a comfort because God has a plan for the Messiah to come and to redeem a people for his namesake and he has a plan to return again and just as no one got in the way with his first coming, no one will get in the way with his second coming as well. Well, there's only one way to find and to know God and secondly, kind of terrifying reality, he's not always gonna be here because secondly, there is a time when you cannot know God he seems to say, there's a time when I am here and there's a time when I am gone. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that. Saying there is a time to believe. There's a time to hear and to accept. And there's a time that that is past. We're gonna see that. Verse 32, he goes on to say, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Which by the way, you're kind of left hanging at this point because they're gonna give their answer later, which we're not gonna get that far they're not going to succeed cuz it's not his time. But therefore, that's kind of the context here. Jesus said, "For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me." He's just saying everything about me is related to my father and I'm here for a little while and then I'm going to go and be with him. You will not you will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Well then, Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he intending to go to the Spursion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? What is this statement that he has said? You will seek me and will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Well, if Jesus is, number one, the only way to know God, then it's a pretty scary thing for him to say, well, he's going to not always be here. He's going to leave. They know what he has said, which is, I am equal to God, what he has claimed. And not only that, he said, you hate God, which is what causes them in verse 32 to try to attempt to seize him, but they can't. But I think 33, 34 looks towards this time of Jesus' exaltation after the cross, his imminent departure, that he's going to leave. Now, there's a lot more teaching on the Spirit. When he leaves, he's gonna have the comfort of the Holy Spirit come, but that's not his point here. His point is to say, I won't always be with you. And he's gonna give an invitation that if you're thirsty, you better come to the fount and you better drink. He has but a short time before the cross, according to the Father's ordained schedule. But for Jesus, the death death is not going to be the end, but a return to glory with the Father, which he had before the world began. John chapter one, John chapter 17 is gonna talk about that. He's gonna be lifted up. But when he reaches that point, you're not gonna be able to get to him. And yet again, they misunderstand what he is saying because they think, and this is ironic because exactly what will happen, that is he gonna go away far, kind of physically and They still misunderstand to say, "No, it's a spiritual that he is returning from above, which we, he is from. He's going back to the Father in heaven." That is to say, Jesus' earthly ministry has a beginning and has an end. And there's a unique period here where people are offered salvation to believe in that time frame, and they're also, though, going to have another time frame, as it were, where the Spirit is going to go out into the world that is going to convict people of their sin. The gospel is gonna be presented and people are going to believe and to be saved. That is to say, there's a time here in the uniqueness of the, the son being on the earth in his earthly ministry. And there's also a unique time, you could say age to come in the spirit. That is the church age. But I say it this way, that there is a time when you cannot know God because although that time is not now, the reality is still there that you will seek and one day you will not find. It hasn't happened yet. But even the spirit age or the church age, it's saying there is a time of salvation that will end. There is a beginning. See Acts chapter two, I think of the church where the gospel begins to go forth to all the nations. We have a job to do, great commission. But there is a time when the Lord will return and there's going to be a time even before that in the sense of death, where the decisions you make in this life will matter. What you do with Jesus it'll be too late to repent. It'll be too late to believe. A couple of places, for example, 2 Peter 3, 9, at this time will end. He says that the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So what is he waiting for? He's patient, he's waiting, he's willing. Just come to me. Second Corinthians 6, 1, 2 and working together with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And Hebrews 9, 27, 28 says it frankly. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes Judgment. And so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. That is to say, he's coming back not to die for sin because he already did that once for all, but he's coming back in triumphant judgment to those who eagerly await him. That is to say, there is a time coming when you cannot know God and it will come whether in death or in Jesus' return and therefore all the more he's saying this is the day of salvation it's the urge to say don't wait don't put off don't think I'm going to believe later don't put it off that when I grow up or when I figure this out or when I have better confidence I'll believe it's like no today is the day to put your trust in Christ because you have no idea what the next hour or the next week holds for you this is the day of Salvation. And so there's only one way to know God. It's through Christ. And He's going to be there for His earthly ministry for a time. And even the spirit age is for a time, which is the urgency to believe. And He's going to then, thirdly, He's going to make this call to repentance. He's going to make this invitation that if you choose, if you believe in Jesus, you will one, know God, and two, have flowing rivers of living water which we're going to see is is kind of an explosion of, of really of trying to fill all these gaps because we don't celebrate the Feast of booze we don't have a desperation for water and all those things are important to understand why Jesus grabs this and pulls it out on the last day of the feast and I think as you see it you'll you'll go this this is kind of an amazing tying together of all that Jesus has done So look at verse 37, just in these few verses, we're going to see it. It makes sense because of what traditions have arose at the feast of booze. And it says, now on the last day, verse 37, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. We've heard this language before, John chapter four, the woman at the well, the living water. But here he's even playing more on the traditions that have come up with the feast of booze. This context shifts a little bit. It could even be that there is a water ritual where they're pouring water on the altar and that's when he cries out, which would be more than appropriate and also would probably cause enough ruckus for them to continue to go after him, which I think makes sense to me, but we don't know for sure. But if you look back at chapter two, we understand the feast of booths, of tabernacles. And remember how we noted that it was a remembrance of that God was with them, that God went with them, that he dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness for the 40 years he was faithful to them, that he quote unquote tented with them in that way in the tabernacle. And then you, John 1, 14, you remember? And the word became flesh and dwelt. And that was that word, that idea of tenting, booth. He tented among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we understand that, okay, we're moving towards not only Pentecost, which we could look at won't this morning, uh, Passover, pretty clear connection to Jesus being the perfect final uh, sacrificial Passover lamb. But even here, that he is a fulfillment of the Feast of Booze, that it was God dwelling there, that remembrance of what he did, but then he's the final fulfillment of saying, here I am, I am dwelling, I am tenting among you. Jesus is gonna make it abundantly clear. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze. first find it, Going back, we talked about it a little bit last week, but in the, the Pentateuch, the description, Deuteronomy 16, is requiring that they all go up to these three main feasts, Pentecost, Passover, and the Feast of Booths. And you have also, by the time of the New Testament times, traditions that kind of arose around it. And so this isn't necessarily biblical, but we know they were celebrating it this way. And so it's actually one of those things in Nehemiah, where at Nehemiah 8, they, they find that they weren't celebrating it. And they begin to celebrate it again, and that's kind of an amazing passage in and of itself. But they also, in Jerusalem, started to develop additional rituals that you could find if you looked at the Jewish uh, Talmud, and they, they did it. And they, one of the things they did is they increased the use of lights, which pretty soon you're going to say right on the, the kind of the heels of this, Jesus is going to say, I am the light of the world. And I imagine he's looking at the light saying, do you see all these lights that are here for the Feast of the Booths? I am that light of the world. They begin singing, Psalm 113 to 118. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 135. And it concluded, this is where it's helpful for us. It concluded, the feast concluded with an elaborate water pouring ceremony based on several prophetic passages about life giving water. We could look at that in Isaiah, Ezekiel, particularly in Zechariah, which we'll look at in a moment. It's represented that you go, what brings life? If you are wandering in a wilderness, water brings life. Life. You can go out a few days without food, but not very long without water. Water was that symbol of provision for Israel throughout all of their exiles to bring back them into the land. And they celebrate again in Nehemiah chapter eight. But flip over to Zechariah chapter 14, um, which isn't too far back. So more of the middle of your Bibles, if you haven't been there in a, a while. Zechariah, one of the prophets And I just find this one super interesting out of all these different ones I've seen. And we kind of looked at with living waters and those symbols of the spirit and water um, and life and that symbol in John chapter four. But here you even see the feast of booths connected with revelation. And if you weren't here for our study, you can find all those uh, sermons online. So I just find it interesting. But if you look at Zechariah 14, verse 16, we're gonna see that Zechariah extends the promise of God's provision of rain and blessing to the Gentiles who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Now, in the context of understanding this, this would be the Messiah has returned. This is the millennial kingdom. And even then, you're celebrating the feast, the booze. And it says, out of the nations that have survived, so I think this is during the millennium, verse 16 of Zechariah 14, then it will be that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King Yahweh of hosts and to celebrate the feast of Booz. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the families of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague with which Yahweh plagues the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booze. This will be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booze. So just as the level of importance here, this is, that's future. That hasn't happened yet. Yahweh hasn't come back, the Messiah hasn't come back and established his reign uh, physically on the earth. But when it does, the feast of booze is connected to Rain. Water, rain brings life. If you don't go up and honor the Son, which we've seen that, right? If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. And He's saying, What is the consequence? What is the judgment? It is that you will not receive rain. Well, they didn't necessarily connect, I don't think, that directly here to their kind of additional uh, ritual, but they did understand the water. And the cleansing, and that it's refreshment, and that it gives life, and that they would come and they'd dip it into the pool of shalom and they'd walk it in all every day. And this being the final day, as they pour it out on the altar, and there we see, verse 37, that Jesus cries out and declares what they would understand, and maybe at first glance we don't see, he is the fulfillment of the feast of booze. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He points to the provision then to say, what do I mean? Well, John probably is the one who puts the anecdotal note here. It's a little hard always to always understand when John but kind of barges in, but this is to say, this he spoke of as the spirit from those who believed in him were going to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus points to the vision of the Holy Spirit after his ascension, and he says, those who are within earshot, if you are thirsty, which is simply to say, this is a picture of the soul, every soul is made with, you could say, a hole that is parched and nourished, or the way Ephesians says it, right, we're dead in our trespasses and sin, parched. You need life. You need water. That is, every person is, to some degree, searching for God, is thirsty. And Jesus is saying, if you thirst, which everyone there should be able to say, you're right, I am missing something. I am thirsting. This is you. Then come to me and drink. And it's a little different than the woman at the well, but the same idea of it being, I think, this regeneration of the Spirit that is salvation but even maybe extending it forward because I think the Spirit is working in the Old Testament. It's not like the Spirit hasn't worked in the Old Testament but it is to say it's coming in a unique way when he is ascendant. He's going to send the Spirit who is going to uniquely then. How is God? How is he going to tent at that point? Not through the Son who came and dwelt among us but through the Spirit who indwells believers. And those who believe in him are going to receive the spirit. And the description of that event is his innermost being. That is, this salvation is something that isn't stagnant, something that is kind of there, but something that is ongoing and flowing. And he calls the people to drink. Certain traditions of the Feast of Booths viewed this pouring ceremony as a foretaste of, you could say, end times, eschatological rivers of living water that, if you go to Ezekiel 47, Zechariah 13, and they connected the water miracle in the wilderness, that the water came from the rock. I think you have at least some evidence for this if you were to go over to 1 Corinthians 10, where that's exactly what Peter or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that Jesus is the provider. In fact, he goes as far to say, his provision is described as him being the very rock in the wandering in the wilderness. He says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse one, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate, drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. Again, just connecting Christ with that provision And then ultimately with the feast of booze, tabernacling among them, God's faithfulness, connecting the son with the father. The clear uh, pronouncement that Jesus is making is that he is the fulfillment of what that feast was anticipating. He's also gonna be the fulfillment of Passover and he's gonna be the fulfillment of Pentecost as well. We don't see all that on first glance until you start to study those feasts and see how they all connect together. But these verses do richly I think anticipate the blessing of the old Old Testament passages that is poured out on a believer like a spring of water welling up for eternal life that's the language from John chapter 4 verse 14 like streams of living water that will flow from within them So what I think John is communicating here is that the spirit of this coming church age is going to empower and dwell the believer in the future. And obviously chiefly, it's talking about salvation and from that will flow life and empower them for ministry, the conduit for which the Holy Spirit works in the world. That is to say we're not saved just to do nothing, but saved to be the source in which God ministers to the world that things flow out of. I said, so you take that picture of a dry desert, which I know we're Nebraskans and we don't have a lot of dryness, but we have dry years here. We kind of see a field that turns brown and you know what water can do And it's meant to be the picture that the work of the Spirit is the Spirit breaking through, flooding your soul with water, that it's not just meant to sit there stagnant, but flowing like a rushing river. So for me, the picture is much better than um, a sand pit lake here that doesn't move much. But think of Colorado and a fresh uh, flowing creek and river that's rushing. That is the picture here of what the Spirit is meant to do and meant to be and meant to come. So there's only one way to find and to know God. There's only a time in which you, your life expands where you have an opportunity to believe and say, there's no time, but like the present, that is today is the day of salvation. So that is true for everyone, even who is here. Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, which that's the qualifier, if you don't understand you have a need, if you don't understand your parts, if you don't understand sin, then you wouldn't look for water, right? New Year's resolution, I'm sure a lot of you have maybe put the drink more water, one of those things, one of the health resolutions. Well, one of the reasons I don't drink much water is I don't feel thirsty because I drink water and coffee and everything all day long because I'm spoiled. And if people don't understand their need, that they're truly parched, that's one of the, I think, main things the church needs to do as they proclaim the gospel, is they need to point out people and say, hey, whether it's look at the law, look at um, your sin. Look at the Ten Commandments. Look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And we may not think we're that bad because we always like to look at the worst comparison, but is very clear. Jesus is very clear that if you have hatred in your heart, you're just as guilty of breaking the law of murder as the one who does murder. It's seeing and understanding that saying, why well, I am thirsty, I am broken, and I need someone to fix. I need someone to give me water. It's recognizing that reality in this life where you can find him. And if you do, he's saying, I will promise, I will give you this wellspring, this living water, which is the spirit which will well up and flow out into the world. As I said earlier, the idea of an oasis, just a hard picture in our culture to see, it's hard for us to experience. But as one spiritual preacher put it, or as one preacher put it, uh, you may need spiritual Drano. And that is to say, you you all tend to get a little bit stagnant, a little bit where things do not flow, where you look at here and you look at the miracle, not only of regeneration, but of justification of salvation and of being indwelt by the spirit that doesn't describe the way you live your life. And partly that is instruction that we would know what that is that we would live in a way where we are joyful and we are excited about the work that the Lord is doing. That you would say, yeah, that describes my spiritual life as flowing and vibrant and living waters to the world. But obviously the only way to do that, especially in an imperfect world with being a human, even a believer still in the flesh, is to continue to be filled for that idea of being controlled by the spirit, being in his word being in prayer, seeking to please Christ in everything we do. And remembering that in all things, we should be thankful and content because ultimately he saved us from sin and death. He is the one who offered the drink which quenched our souls. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you as we look towards this kind of imagery and the picture that it is of who Christ is. Lord, even the kindness that He is preaching this message, He is giving this invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. He's giving it to the very enemies who seek to kill him. Lord, we see that, and we see in Christ something we are not, something otherworldly. A love, a kindness, and a compassion that we want more of. Lord, so help us continue to grow even in this new year, mature that our lives and our hearts would be conformed more to the image of Christ, that we would look more like him in our interactions, both in the way he speaks truth, but yet also in his love for his enemies, for others, and that we would desire for others to know the sweet, refreshing drink, water, living water that Christ is. That if we are truly in Christ, we have experienced and hope that you would use us to remind others who are yours and to introduce Christ to those who are in the world are thirsting. Lord, may we be there willing to offer them the refreshing drink that is the gospel of Christ. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.